Promise No Promises Feminism Under Corona Episode 3 Radical Sociability The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 new episodes arise from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. Beyond simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the current crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism where not only gender, class and race imbalances are reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. The following episode arises from a conversation with Berlin-based artist, curator, writer and radio producer Lou Drago. Radical Sociability and Acting Intersectional Affinity is the title of a lecture by Lou Drago. I had the opportunity to attend their presentation as part of the two-day techno-seminar To Be Real Part 3, held at Wiastopski Castle, Center for Contemporary Art in Varsa, at the end of February 2020. Lou's contribution was a personal text, incorporating many other voices, unfolding in an extremely inspiring way, the enormous complexity of the relationship between identity politics and the current and growing division of the left. As a way of overcoming the divisive effects of identitarianism, they propose to enact an intersectional affinity-based politics. In order to avoid the dynamics of the current cancel culture, so present and constant in social networks, Lou's proposal is based on calling in rather than calling out. Borrowing Lou's own words, we could define calling in as a practice of loving each other enough to allow each other to make mistakes, a practice of loving ourselves enough to know that what we're trying to do here is a radical unlearning of everything we have been configured to believe is normal. Around the same time of Lou's lecture in Varsa, the COVID-19 was a reality becoming more present and more tangible in Europe. Within a few days, living a global lockdown situation, distancing ourselves socially from each other, would become a form of collective solidarity. Because of the effect that words have on us, I still wonder if it would not have been more accurate to call it physical distance. In order to avoid to increase the distance between us any further and exclude those forms of digital intimacy that also emerged during the lockdown. For example, this conversation with Lou, which took place at the beginning of June 2020, still connected the two of us, staying both in Berlin through our screens. It was a conversation of several hours, in which we navigated together issues and situations such as the binary understanding of reality, gender abolitionism, the naturalized and somehow hidden ideology of language, xenofeminist desire, queer as a methodology and constant practice of unlearning, different personal experiences produced by the COVID-19, and the different political events of the last weeks as a result of the forms of violence of structural racism. I guess I try and always keep a kind of personal practice of working to debinarize my thinking in general. It's very much taught to us 
from a young age to think about everything in binaries, good and bad, black and white, progressive or conservative, this type of things. The real world is not like that at all. There's always a gray area. There's always something in between. And there's always the point at which these things are meeting. And also these things are really subjective. What is good to one is obviously not good to another. And these kind of like uh, moral assumptions or so in which we assume that this logic is somehow the dominant logic, but really it's coming from a particular position. With COVID-19, what we read in the media about how one country is doing well, or other country is doing terribly, it's again a personal position. Of course, there are statistics in terms of which countries are having higher death rates or which countries are handling certain elements better or not. But even these are subjective because we don't know necessarily how accurate the numbers are, who is declaring all of the deaths, all of these type of things. In general, I, I just try to keep this practice of, and it's also very difficult, I fail often as well. It's very easy to jump on whatever thing and make an assumption like, ah, oh, yes, this country has done this bad or this terribly, this wonderfully. But I try to come back to being somehow flexible, like understanding the complexity in a situation. Reading complexity into everything is a personal exercise I try to do for myself. Like I say, not necessarily all the time well. I started learning French a little bit as a teenager, like in high school, and I was always terrible at it, but more for concentration reasons, probably not for language reasons. I started learning German when I moved to Germany. As a native English speaker, learning gendered language is super bizarre. Even just having different ways to say the in a feminine, masculine or neutral sense, well, it seems unnecessary. And then, of course, having to gender objects which don't need to have a gender. The same for people. It's as old as language is, so it's a very difficult thing to start to question. I would love to ideally get to a place in speaking German that I speak so well that I can then somehow subvert the language by messing around with these gender pronouns. But at the moment, if I try to do that, people just think I'm a terrible German speaker. In terms of speaking about myself, using they, them pronouns has been an interesting journey. I really like the way that DJ Sprinkles or Terry Tamlitz uses he and she interchangeably which I think is even more disruptive probably than they, because of course it's quite difficult to keep track in your sentence if you say he one time and then she the next time. And that's exactly her intention, is to try and make it complicated. Whereas I guess when I was first coming to understand myself as an agender subject, non-binary, something in this category, I really didn't want to be disruptive. On the contrary, I was highly aware of not wanting to take up any space and not wanting to be an imposition on anybody and it took me a long time to actually assert that this was the gender that I had identified with and would like people to refer to me as they instead of she. I guess I started with this maybe five or six years ago. It's still something that's like complicated all of the time because of course we live in a gendered society in which people read you as either male or female. And this is another thing that is again really open to connotation. It's something that changes a lot in relation to who you're with, what you're doing, of course what you're wearing and how you physically appear, but it depends on the context also. There's 
contexts that I'm in that are more queer and people would either ask your pronouns right away, either would start with a neutral pronoun until you correct them, something like this. But in regular society, of course, it doesn't work like that. Then someone reads me and identifies me in a certain way. And I guess I'm achieving my goal of being androgynous because it, it happens almost 50-50 that someone refers to me as a male or a female. That often, usually in France, people are saying madame, but sometimes also monsieur. For a long time, I was just getting really frustrated by this, but I have to kind of always have this conversation with myself about, well, the space I inhibit is this androgynous in-between space. So I have to get used to the fact that there is no properly gendering me because it's never going to happen that someone assumes the, the neutral. It depends, I guess, on my mood on the day or like how well I'm doing with myself. If it's a random person in a shop, I would never try to tell them to call me they, but I somehow subvert it the other way. Like, if a shop assistant uh, greets me with madame, then I would just answer, like, in my very deepest voice and try and make them uncomfortable, and then they get really flustered or something like this. I guess I've gotten a bit more used to taking a bit more space with this. As before, I would just really internalize that and be really frustrated, and it's not helping anyone. So I think it's more fun to play with it. I mean, of course, if I'm having a bad day and I just don't want to have to deal with this type of thing, then I will probably just internalize it and then rant to a friend later, maybe, I don't know. Depends on the situation. Gender and with being transgender, that it's a constant negotiation in the world with how you're read by others and how you perceive of yourself. And I think any person that is inhibiting a space that is non gender presenting what even that means is going to come up against these questions in daily life. It's just a journey that I guess that I've personally taken to try and not let it be all-consuming. When you're first going through these things, it takes up a lot of space and I've been really trying to make it not everything that I think about because it feels way too self-involved. As a feminist, there's always a journey of overcoming this internalized misogyny. Everyone grows up misogynist in a way. Everyone grows up racist to a certain extent, just because that is how society is. And so it's a constant process of undoing these things ingrained in you since childhood. For feminists to also overcome this self-misogyny as a necessary work. I never went strongly into this man-hating thing, but I definitely, for a long period of, of my life, never found that I was able to be attracted to men. I don't know exactly why, maybe it was because I was more feminine presenting and I couldn't imagine myself somehow in this power dynamic. And so it's only through transitioning, if you want to call like that, and appearing no longer as a female that I could, again, engage in being attracted to men. But I guess that's also part of like my debinarizing practice. Of course, there are people who also identify with these genders and that's completely fine. But trying not to see people as that one gender and realize that it's always a complexity. I have some male friends who are much better feminists than some of my female friends, for example. There's never a clear distinction that just because you have been socialized as a man that you share all of the components that it means to be a man.
preconceived idea that you imagine when you think about a feminist. I really have a non-essentialist point of view when it comes to any of these terms, and I think why I'm so against like separatist thinking in general is that for the same reason that race is a white person's problem because white people are the people who have created even the concept or the categorization of race is the same reason why feminism should be man's problem because the subjugation of women has been through men establishing this hierarchy and so i think that's why it needs to be something that is in the popular conscious feminism should be essentialized to women at all how to change that is another question but i think a good part of that is through being inclusive and not being separatist and including men and including trans people in these conversations and really trying to establish a more intersectional, for want of a better word. Queer is one of those frustrating terms, like right now is so overused that it kind of gets to a point in which it almost doesn't mean anything anymore. I try to use it kind of Sparingly, I guess, when it's really necessary or when not necessary, but when it's really the only word that can be used to describe whatever it is that I'm talking about. Because also otherwise you end up bringing in so many other words to try and say what you're saying when queer could kind of just sum it up. But I don't really see queer necessarily as a category that one can fit inside. Rather, I try to imagine it more as a verb. It's kind of like a way that you do things. It's to do with a process of continual becoming about never resting there is never a final goal there is always a constant subverting of the norms and challenging i think like never within our lifetime we're going to get to a point in which all people are actually equal so there's always going to be a need to keep pushing things when you think about LGBT rights for so many LGBT people, the kind of end goal for equality is equal marriage, for example, whereas I really don't see that this is a end goal by any means because this is so exclusive to so many people. And also, why would we want to adopt marriage, which is a Christian patriarchal structure and something so normative? I would much rather do away with that in general or have other ways into which one can create kin or like family, conceive of family in a completely different structure. So I think queer in that sense is about a continual kind of process of pushing things further and to try and keep being more and more inclusive to everyone. That's also something I kind of put into the talk a bit that you attended, which was getting away from labeling things as a way of maybe letting actions speak louder than words. But I mean, we live in a society in which everything is categorized, in which identity is so prominent, a way of, I guess, positioning yourself and identifying yourself to other people. But it also becomes very restrictive. You kind of end up with all these words following your name, like I am this, 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 and this. Whereas if maybe people are a bit less quick to judge, we could also have the space to just let our actions speak louder than these words. And like you say, just if you live a feminist life or you live a queer life or an anti-racist life, you enact these gestures without the need to call yourself something. But categorizations are a fundamental part of the way that we live, so it's a very difficult space to mediate.
I guess the link with Xeno Entities, the collective that I'm a part of, Xeno Entities Network, and Xeno Feminism. I mean, our namesake is, is not because of them, it was just a coincidence. And I think what we have in common is this idea of the other, you know, Xeno meaning the other. And that's what I was attracted to also about Xeno Feminism, that it feels like a more inclusive and intersectional form of feminism, that they have a gender abolitionist framework and a non-essentialist uh, way of thinking about feminism, which I really relate to. Obviously, there has to be a lot of work done to bring equality between men and women, but I think that only equality will come when all the kind of gender signifiers or like gendered behaviors are eliminated. It doesn't mean there will be no more men and women, but it means that that boys and girls will be raised to have the same similar care. I mean, when you think about, for example, the way that, that little girls are, of course, traditionally playing with dolls from a very young age, that they're playing with babies. A little girl and you're growing up with these ideas of care and that you're to take care of these babies and that when you have a two-year-old that's having its own baby, you're growing up from such a young age to replicate these kind of care structures. so many many tiny things that happen throughout our lives and our collective experiences which shape who we end up being and I definitely played with dolls when I was a kid and it didn't lead me to being that feminine as an adult it's not always so clear I guess I've been thinking a lot recently about care especially through COVID-19 and about the role that care plays in society and how undervalued it is of course this is a really long standing um, feminist conversation since as long as feminism has existed but particularly what Sylvia Federici writes about wages for housework and this type of thing but I've really been trying to understand why it's very often that men generally speaking don't have the same role of the carer of course it's to do with socialization or like how you raise your kids and the kids like little boys are not necessarily taught to be caring. So when I think about gender abolition, I'm really thinking about how to abolish the way that these characteristics are attached to what it means to be masculine or feminine or to be a man or a woman. And that when we have a society in which, for example, men are just as caring and doing so much of the care work and the domestic labor and such things as this as women, then I feel like this will be a post-gender society. But there is a long way to go before that. And I don't know if that's exactly what Xeno feminists are having in mind when they're talking about gender abolitionism, but for sure that's uh, definitely a link um, between what we're thinking about with Xeno entities and what the Xeno feminists are writing about. nuclear understanding of the family structure in which you have the authority and then you have the kids that are really under that have to be responsible to the parents and I don't know I don't plan to have kids myself but sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't be a good idea because then I could really put some of these practices that I'm thinking about into action even thinking about the relationship within the family and changing the, not changing the hierarchy in terms of letting the kids have as much authority as the adults of course not but somehow 
letting there be more of a conversation between the two. Of course, this also only goes so far because I was also getting into an argument the other day in the park with some German, like, seemingly middle-class uh, moms who are having zero authority over their kids. And I have noticed this kind of, like, parenting trend recently, and I've been having a bit of a conversation around this with some friends, what I call non-parenting parenting, or, like, entitlement training, in which they were really just, like, letting their little boys run wherever they wanted which was happened to be under me while I was playing sport and potentially going to harm their kid and we said to them like hey do you think you could maybe ask your kids to move because these kids of course were just playing and completely absorbed in their own world and were not aware of the fact that they were about to receive a basketball in their head it's not a fear a kid you still have to have some guidance from your parents where is appropriate what to do how to share space with other humans but the mums were kind of just like ah yeah but if we tell them to move they wouldn't do it anyway and i was really you have no ability to encourage your kids how to act in society, how to act with other human beings. It was really bizarre to me. What was frustrating in this park situation, because I did initially talk to the kid and I said like, can you see we're playing here and we were here first and could you maybe play somewhere else because I don't want to hurt you, it's dangerous here. The parents were of course looking at me like, why are you talking to our kids? And I was like, okay, well, can you move the kid? And they were not prepared to do that. So I understand what your friend's position is when you can speak to other kids. I feel like it's a, maybe it's a more social way of parenting also in which all adults are somehow responsible for all the kids in the environment and vice versa. But of course, if some parents are not on board with that kind of parenting or like communal parenting, then it becomes very complicated. Anti-vaccine narrative is super dangerous, I think. It's a privilege to be able to have a vaccine, and I think it's kind of an abusive privilege to not do that for the others who cannot have it. It's the whole dynamic with corona, with COVID-19. And coming back to what you were first asking me about in terms of this binary, good, bad, COVID subject. In Berlin, where there were clear guidelines, but it was always somehow a bit ambiguous, not because the guidelines were ambiguous, but because people were really not adhering to it very strictly. I think like many places also, even in France, I think people at the start being very liberal with their use of these guidelines until it got to the point that the state had to intervene. How we come to make these assumptions of whether you're like being a good or bad COVID subject as to how social your thinking is and or like sacrifices that you have to make in your own life in order to protect the healthcare system and to protect other human beings. When we get to the point of having a vaccine, if it does come to that point, the only way it's going to work is if it's really widely taken up by everyone who can have a vaccine. If there's such a strong anti-vaccine narrative, then of course it's never going to be helpful because this COVID-19 will survive.
I'm lucky because my radio program is already online and it's something that doesn't change with COVID. Although I did end up missing one session because an artist, it actually happened to be a moment where we were going to go to the studio to record and couldn't go to the studio record. And then I was thinking, okay, maybe I could invite them to my place because they're based in Berlin. But then actually we realized that was not socially responsible. And so we ended up just canceling, postponing the show. But other than that, I've been able to continue doing the radio show online. And I guess because it's also ambient and experimental music, it's not something that needs a, an audience necessarily it's intended as a radio show for people to listen at home in a solitary manner in a very contemplative and reflective manner so it's not requiring a dance floor of course it's also really nice to experience this music with other people and i do love to play for example i don't know at 7 a.m when people are tired at the end of the party or something and then they have some really trippy drawn music to come down to this is also a great pleasure i definitely had many gigs cancelled because of the corona which i was looking forward to but this is something that i got over very quickly i'm still super lucky the radio show continues in this format is perfect actually for during corona For techno and other dance music DJs, it's of course a very different situation because even though there have been many different platforms appearing to try and mediate this new situation we found ourselves in, at least for me personally as a dancer and raver, it doesn't make sense to log on to a live stream because what I love about dance music is the collective nature of it. Of course, also the sound and the music, but it's not the type of thing that I desire to listen to if I'm at home. I want to be with other people dancing. Participated and tuned in to see friends playing and that's of course something different, but what I get from the rave or what I get from the club is not something that can be replicated in my bedroom. Maybe with some new designer drugs, I don't know, there's not such thing yet. <laughs> but it's not something that can be transposed onto the online world. And I realized that, of course, for many DJs, it's incredibly important to keep a presence so that they're not forgotten into the, I don't know, mass of internet nonsense that we see going around. So I understand there is this kind of anxiety to remain present or remain somehow in people's conscious. As the clubs reopen, what I do hope is that through this COVID pandemic, we have been able to reflect on what it is that we want from our clubbing experience. Why is it that we gather together and kind of coming back to this more like effectual exchange, the kind of more like primitive desire to dance in the ways that we dance together and then kind of reimagine the club or reimagine the spaces in which we dance to somehow meet those needs again. I've heard from friends uh, who are DJs or promoters that there are many people who are not actually missing that much to be either putting on parties or be DJing in clubs. The way that we were doing it before, of course, was to meet the capitalist need. We have to create or produce a certain amount to survive in a system where there's rents to pay and food to eat and, you know, bills to pay. But maybe we wouldn't necessarily be making parties that regularly if it wasn't for this material needs to be met. And maybe through this slowing down, we will be able to get to a point in which we're really creating parties and meetings from 
a different kind of desire, not just a material one. Of course, we are going back into capitalism. We're not somehow like escaped from capitalism within COVID. So it's quite likely, of course, that these structures will just come back to exactly how they were before because we still have the same material needs to be met. So I shouldn't be too optimistic about the transformative potential of this COVID experience. Something that I am hopeful about or have seen happening is these kind of new collaborations that have come, like you were mentioning, between some artist management or booking agencies. There have been definitely mutual aid organizations that have been popping up. And I think this has politicized people who are maybe less willing to speak out before. The potential to bring together people who were practicing different political urgencies, but separately. And they've come together through this COVID to create collaborations and somehow work together on these eventual goals. And I hope that these collaborations can continue in the post-COVID world. nice anecdote I could put in there is about the Berlin Collective Action Group. A bunch of friends and a bunch of people I don't know also got together at the very, well, relative start of the crisis before we knew about this IBB funds and help for freelancers, which was a mutual aid network fundraising money for people who were in nightlife, who were out of work because of the COVID crisis. And so, of course, this was, um, you know, for DJs, but bar workers also, light technicians, sex workers, anyone affected by the nightlife industry. And this was an incredible initiative where about like 12 different people got together to work on this and they managed to raise a lot of money in quite a short amount of time. At some part through the couple of weeks into the process, then there was this IBB fund in which many of the freelancers, so like many DJs and bar workers, these type of people ended up getting this 5,000 euro. So then the people who were ending up to apply for this mutual aid fund were more like asylum seekers and people without homes, the most marginalized people of society, actually people without papers. And what I found really beautiful was that this network that was initially for one kind of demographic ended up really coming to help another demographic, making a link between them. And I found this super inspiring that there was this really social action, that there were people dedicating all of their time and resources to helping the most marginalized people who are the ones who would be slipping through the cracks of the German system where the state is kind of failing to look after those people. this radical sociability enacting intersectional affinity. You're right, I was really writing somehow from the gut because it, I felt like it was something really urgent and something that really needed to be expressed from me because I guess I was getting to a point of seeing this call-out culture and cancelling culture just getting to such an extreme level that was for me 
further segregating communities and further segregating the left. We're already, since many years, so fractured that the left is now so divided between all these different identitarian groups or identity groups. I think very often it's much easier to attack or call out people who are somewhere on your side because it's a much easier goal than it is to look at the structures and look at who is somehow the real enemy. It's also, it's much more instantaneous to make a quick message or something on social media and have your two cents and also to show others that you are on a particular side of whatever argument it is if you're for or against this thing. There's also a lot of ego I think that comes into it to be seen to be doing the right thing. Whereas what's really difficult is actually doing the longer task, which is like educating and sharing resources and sharing knowledge to those people who may in some way be similarly aligned to you, but who have somehow strayed or made a mistake. There are people who are probably having quite similar ideas to you, but they've just missed a certain piece of knowledge. Like none of us know all of the information that we know now. We didn't know this two years ago, six months ago. Of course, in six months from now, we're gonna know so much more. It's um, a continual process of learning. I guess when I wrote this, January, February, I had no idea the kind of meaning that it would come to take on now in a corona pandemic and also the heightened situation of white supremacy that's been brought to the forefront in the last weeks, even though, of course, it's an ongoing problem since 500 years or longer. But now, of course, there's a very visible strain in which it's kind of obvious that you have to, at this moment, pick a side. Are you for an anti-racist politics or not? This idea of radical sociability is really pertinent now, in which it's really important for people on, I guess, the left, for a better want of a word, but people with a social mindset to really think about the way that they're communicating with other people and somehow have some compassion in the way that we're talking and also not making assumptions about another person's point of view because so often when all the communication is being done on social media there's so much misunderstanding that can come out there's so much nuance and effect which is left out of communication when it's just in a text-based format on social media and there's certain gestures which of course are intended well but can end up being very damaging I think it's very easy to just jump down somebody's throat and say, hey, you did that wrong. This was not cool. This was racist. This was misogynist, whatever it is. And it's much harder to actually reach out to that person and say, hey, maybe you didn't mean to say that, or I'm not sure if you're aware of this, or do you realize that the words that you have said have this implication to build a stronger left, to build a truly like anti-racist Politics means doing this difficult educating work with other white people, for example, or similarly with feminism or with any of these social causes that we're looking at. Why I struggled so much with writing this piece was because it was constantly in my mind of, okay, how am I going to be cancelled somehow for writing this? How am I going to be called out? Am I going to be seen to be colorblind, for example? There's so many ways in which I could be 
seem to be doing the wrong thing. But I think that's also something that needs to be accepted is that we will always fuck up. <laughs> there will always be somebody who's not on board with what it is that you're saying or doing. Like this black square example is a perfect one of that. I also didn't post this, but I was really in two camps about it. It was clear that using the hashtag was fucking the algorithm. And so this was obviously detrimental to the Black Lives Matter movement. So this is clear not to do that, sure. But it was also one of these things that people were saying that just doing this, but without really considering it or without writing anything, is just a, a superficial or virtue signaling gesture. Whereas maybe I'm too optimist in this sense, but I was also seeing that there were so many people on my feed who have never seen doing or saying anything necessarily that political or outspoken before, but they were making this gesture. And I didn't see it in the sense that they were virtue signaling or that they wanted to be seen to be doing the right thing, but maybe they didn't yet have the words to articulate what they were feeling about this, but they knew that this was a moment. Okay, we've also been told, do not be silent. Being silent is being complicit in, is being complicit in the violence. So I need to say something, I want to express my solidarity, but I don't know how to say it. So I will make this gesture, which of course for some people they were probably doing it mindlessly, but I think for many people they were doing it because they don't know what else to say in this situation. So there's several ways to look at it. It's not just what we were coming back to before about binary, that's, it's good or a bad gesture. It's not just a virtue signaling or a social gesture. At least there is one side to see that there were so many people getting on board and even when you see how many people are going to the streets about this issue all over the world, and in spite of the fact that we're in a pandemic, for every person that is going to the street, there's probably another at home that wants to, but is too concerned about the pandemic. So I think there is something definitely positive to be taken, even from this black square gesture, which of course ended up creating a lot of negative implications, there is still something good to read into that, which is that there has been a shift in the consciousness in which people realize, okay, we're at a point that enough is enough and we have to stand up and we have to do something. It's not all good, but it's not all bad either. There's definitely a gray area in between. This is definitely a parallel that I saw with radical sociability in which this is also not the moment to shame those people who have done something, maybe not that consciously, maybe it wasn't a very thought through gesture, but it also wasn't the worst gesture in the world either. And so instead of shaming them, saying, you've done wrong, this is not good enough, how dare you, maybe kindly kind of pointing out to them, okay, you've done this thing, it wasn't the best, it was not good for this and this reason, have you considered this, this and this? I think through a bit more compassion, at least in the way that we talk with one another, people will be more open to change, to educate themselves, to make a better gesture next time. When you think about the last time you learned something or the last time you changed your mind about something, was that because someone was screaming at you that you were doing it wrong? Or was it because someone was gently pointing out? Or was it because you read something and you were somehow in a calm enough space to take that on? learning through this like very violent method of shaming i very much doubt for myself that that would be a way in which i would learn when i'm like told that i'm doing something wrong of course it's a reaction to be defensive to be like no i didn't mean that i didn't mean that and so you become very closed but when someone points out to you hey you did that but have you thought about that you're much more receptive to see it in a different way
what you're saying is completely right and I think like the black voices that are talking to white people about this race, of course not always, but very often, are much more compassionate somehow. Maybe because they realize that this is the only way to change people's mind. Of course not everyone. Often when white people are talking to other white people, there's also so much guilt that we carry about being white and about not wanting to be racist, uh, that we project that guilt onto other people, end up shaming other white people. If we consider that we've not always been as woke as we are now, and so accepting that other people are at different stages of their journey. For example, when I'm talking with my dad, who's votes left, but he was also kind of talking to me about the idea of reverse racism, and it was my immediate reaction to kind of like jump down his throat and be like, no, that's not a thing, da da da. I really tried to embody this concept of radical sociability and paused myself, let him speak, let him say what he was trying to say, and then approach it from another angle and went asking him like, okay, well, have you thought about this, this and this? It ended up that he was much more receptive, really understood in the end, like, oh, okay, reverse racism isn't a thing. And I was really happy to like make this progress with him in the conversation. I mean, we were meant to be having a video call and all week I was dreading talking with him because I knew that I could not keep my mouth shut about the uprisings in the US that have been happening as a result of this police violence. It's also kind of an obligation, right, to talk to people who are somehow problematic in your life, whether it's family members or other friends or people in your extended community. So I was like preparing myself for a difficult conversation and it ended up going much better than I expected. Whether it changes anything with him, I have no idea. But at least he came to understand this concept that reverse racism isn't a thing. We see in the media a lot some female celebrity who has suddenly taken up feminism when they've never had a feminist politics before and it's super frustrating because suddenly they're getting all the credit for something which actual feminists have been taking on for decades but in reality i guess we should be happy in a sense because that means that it reached the mainstream in some way or it's reached a certain level in which these people are taking it on and of course there are always going to be people who capitalize on these certain politics to make themselves look better without really embodying that but at the end of the day i guess we have to try to not let that be the thing that gets us down and focus on attacking them as opposed to like looking at the bigger structures and keep fighting the bigger fight somehow because other female celebrity is not the enemy of feminism. definitely a couple of different directions of predictions of what's going to happen in terms of the way that we interact with one another. And I guess one is this way that you mentioned of before Baradi saying that perhaps we're going to become a little bit allergic to our computers because we have had this like very concentrated period of time in which we've been so much on these Zoom and Jitsi and Skype calls that we really crave somehow the physical touch. And then of course there is the other, not that it's a binary, there's probably many, many various ways of thinking about it, but there's another kind of trend of discussion that I've been hearing which is more that it will continue that we will understand how convenient it is to meet people online as opposed to having to travel 
however long to meet someone in reality. It's kind of hard for me to personally predict, but I know that for myself, it has only reiterated how much I value in real life meetings. There's certainly a level of convenience that comes from these online conversations, but I do crave so much the personal interaction and there's so much I think that can be lost or that is lost through a digital conversation. There's so much effectual, so much non-verbal communication that you just don't see when you don't see all of the person or when you don't feel the person in front of you, which I definitely crave and I'm really enjoying starting to have those physical meetings again with people. Maybe a month and a half ago, I had an online recorded conversation with a colleague, Pedro, and another colleague, Steph, which will be the first episode of a new radio show on Kashmir Radio called House of Commons. And we called it at that point, Silent Protest, in which we've now updated to Unsilent Protest. We were basically talking about all of these kind of things, but that was like already five weeks ago. Time behaves so differently inside this COVID-19 period in which now what we were talking about seems completely outdated. And I think already since that time, we've seen or I've noticed at least the way that people interact with one another. It's not so different to before. I think maybe if it had gone on longer, this isolation, then there would have been even more psychological damage. Not to say that there is not, because in Berlin, I think we're very, very lucky compared to many, many other places. So, of course, my experience is contextually located inside Berlin. I was really thinking that I would have to relearn all these kind of ways of being physically with other people, because you do have this immediate reaction not to hug someone, not to reach out, not to touch, not to do these kind of small gestures of intimacy, which are so fundamental to human interaction. And I was really thinking that it would become quite a process of having to relearn these and renegotiate, have kind of non-verbal communications with each and every person that you meet, each encounter that you have okay do we hug do we not hug what is the code how also to be respectful of what another person needs but i think it's something that i've been observing to be quite interesting and each person that i've met it is an almost instantaneous acknowledgement or not as to whether we're going to hug or whether we're not going to hug there are quite few people that i've met actually who are not hugging still i had a hug for the first time yesterday or the day before with my closest friend who we've been one of the only people that we've been continuing to meet throughout the quarantine and he was taking it incredibly strictly the whole time i was also doing my best but not as well as him and so it was really wonderful when we got to the point where he said okay i'm ready i really fucking need a hug after like three months of not hugging and this was so so necessary every time we met which was like at least once a week it was not quite the same because there was not this physical intimacy which we're used to sharing. And then the moment that we managed to hug again, at least for me, I didn't talk to him about it, but it was really like a wall had been removed and it was just like 100% there with one another again. Physical intimacy, I think, is so important. And I mean, at least in my own experience as a quote-unquote queer person, these normative ways of being with one another that 
one is socialized with in a kind of straight existence, which is having a bit more distance from one another, different ways of relating to one another in terms of your gender, how like straight men don't traditionally hug one another or shake hands instead, or how men would kiss a woman on the cheek or something to greet each other, or these kind of like very gendered signifiers, which is something that I've been de-learning or like relearning for myself over the last 12 years or so meet every person with the same physicality regardless of their gender regardless of my gender or their perceived gender of, of me whatever so it's kind of a different type of intimacy or a different kind of physicality that I embody or attempt to embody and I think this is something that I was really concerned that maybe would be lost through this COVID-19 period in which I would really have to relearn again how to be physical with other human beings. The interesting moral conflict that each and every person has to have with themselves, I guess, is how much am I self-sacrificing, like my own mental health, in order for the somehow bigger good, bigger social cause, which is to not spread the infection. With this COVID, what is difficult is that we still don't know so much about how it's spread. Of course, we know a lot already. There's been incredible developments very quickly, but we still don't know everything. Also because it's something asymptomatic, where it gets really complicated. It's not like you know if you've got it and you have to be careful, but like you could at any moment be a potential carrier and so have to exercise this caution at any given moment. And I think also why so many people have been so carefree about it maybe also is because they don't see the symptoms on themselves and so they figure that it's fine, that they don't have to exercise certain distancing. I had this very uncanny, bizarre experience like a week ago where I had been, I guess, having a bit of guilt about the fact that I had had like one or two meetings uh, more than I should have been or maybe relaxing a bit earlier perhaps, which of course compared to other people was not at all relaxing and compared to other people was relaxing way too much. That's the thing, it's like this huge spectrum of different people's behaviors. But anyway, so maybe I was internalizing some of this guilt, I don't know what it was about that, but I came to, I was waking up in the morning and became aware of the fact that I was really cold. I really needed to pee, so I was trying to get myself out of bed, but I couldn't get out of bed because I was freezing. And I finally managed to get to the bathroom and I, my teeth are chattering and I was really cold. And I think to myself, oh shit, I have a fever. I've got it, this is it. And oh no, I will be infecting my partner. And I had such guilt and I was really going through the whole process of coming to accept the fact that I had COVID. Okay, how do I deal with the situation? So I had like the thermometer in my mouth and I was going back to bed and putting my mask on so that I would not infect my partner, which is obviously ridiculous because he's probably got it by now, if I had it. And he woke up and saw me like, okay, what is going on here? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I think I've got a fever. I start researching on the internet. Okay, what is it to have a fever? Because it was like 37.8, which I find out is actually completely within the realm of normal. An hour later, I was feeling fine. There was absolutely no problem. I probably had just gotten a chill in the night. I don't know, but maybe I had Corona for a day. I don't know what it was, but I really understood experientially what it meant to have Corona, at least for a brief moment. And this really did shock me into behaving a bit more responsibly because I couldn't live with this guilt of infecting other people. 
it's uh, allergy season and there are many people who are having allergies and people sneezing or coughing or eyes running all over the show and I got something stuck in my throat when I was sitting on the canal the other day like because there's so much pollen it looks like snow and I started choking and I had to like really run off from this public area because I was so like concerned that it would be triggering for people that <laughs> I was going to be passing something to them. Something that you say when you mention the card makes me think it's important to say. I've already seen like before COVID-19 that there are some cafes or shops, I don't know, that are only using card payment. There are certain things which are being introduced or implemented during COVID-19 that I think we have to be super cautious to not let them become the norm, such as card-only payment. When we get to a point in which society is only using card, this is very dangerous. I mean, there is so much of the economy which is relies on cash, such as like illegal things, such as under the table work, which can only be dealt with in cash. And the moment that we start to normalize everything being done through card payments, this means everything is traceable. This means everything is recorded. Maybe it doesn't affect you. Maybe it doesn't affect anyone you know, but it will be affecting some people in society. And so this is something super important to be cautious of. Also for homeless people who rely on people having change with them. When we transition to a card-only society, how do these people survive? Homeless people in countries that they have like really a card-only system. And I really wonder how do these people survive because so many people just don't carry cash anymore. Keeping a cash society is vitally important. Technologies which governments are trying to implement in terms of surveillance, which I think we have to be super cautious with because they come from a good intention, but most of these things with a good intention at some point will be corrupted or if they're not already corrupt in some way. Suddenly making yourself completely available and traceable through our technologies, I think this is something also to be very cautious of. To not suddenly have this like blind trust that technology is going to save us from corona, like no. to this process of how do you even say it decapitalizing no uncapitalizing the i let's say that <laughs> anyway making the i in a small letter my english is so bad it's my native tongue i've lost so much of my ability to speak english like a native english speaker even in a party like a few months ago before corona somebody was guessing where i'm from by my accent and he said well for sure not a native english speaker <laughs> i was laughing so much i guess i really don't speak english like a native english speaker how i got to decapitalizing the i i mean i think i was just writing and i was finding it really bizarre because like in no other language that i'm aware of you capitalize the I and I started researching why it happens in English and it was really just an aesthetic choice that they didn't like the look of this singular letter. It's maybe the only word that is one letter and because of this anomaly they decided that it should be capitalized which I thought was really bizarre because you do not capitalize any other personal pronoun and so I kind of took on this idea of making the I small so that it was equal with everyone else. 
It was a really interesting process. It's continually an interesting process because, of course, like when you're writing on your phone, there's autocorrect and it's all the time autocorrecting to be a capital I. Even though I tried to teach my phone to replace capital I with a lowercase I, somehow many apps don't like that lesson that I've tried to teach it. And so it's all the time capitalizing it. And so I have to backspace, decapitalize it. So it's a kind of constant process of self-regulating my writing. Typing on a keyboard, it's much easier because you just don't press shift, but with the autocorrect, it's a nightmare. And of course, when I'm like writing emails to whatever bureaucratic thing, I kind of have this like back and forth, should I do it, should I not do it? They're gonna think that I just can't speak English properly. <laughs> I have to clarify why I'm doing this process and sometimes it's not really necessary to make. Just started as an exercise. I don't know whether it's really like a huge political gesture or not, but I think since doing that, there's definitely been like some people who have picked up on it and found it interesting to talk about. something so beautiful about living in a really multicultural society because we borrow certain things from different languages and different idiosyncrasies that come from a certain way of speaking and cohabiting with a French person and so I'm taking on like certain ways of saying things. Just this borrowing of language and sharing of mannerisms I think is something really special and so we kind of develop a new language that belongs only to us. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Instituto Susch, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and Art Stations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all fields of knowledge that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Instituto Susch is part of Museum Susch, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation Switzerland and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found on museumsusch.ch. That's museumsush.ch. Recording and editing, Sonja Fernandez-Pan. Final editing, Elena Cesar. 
Music Stephen McAvoy. Research Team Alice Wilke und Marion Ritzmann. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Konrad Siegel und Chris Handberg. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Promise No Promises is produced by the Art Institute HCK FHNW in Basel and Instituto Susch, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland 2020.